Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's the story of the ghosts of dead samurai fighting demons in a parallel dimension in order to maintain the balance of good and evil on Earth. <laughs> it's a tale as old as time. Right, right. It's a song as old as rhyme. There's not many places in the world where a bloke from Adelaide can find fame as a cross-dressing wrestler and metal musician. But thankfully, Japan is one of them. Ladybeard is, as you can see, an excitable cross-dresser. He's also a pro wrestler, a martial arts stuntman, and a heavy metal singer. He came to Japan six years ago to pursue his stunt and wrestling career, and he fitted right in. Crazy guy. Bless you. I love you. <laughs> How you doing? Oh mate, I am fantastic. It is, it is an honour and a privilege to, to, to be chatting with yourself this morning. That is a very healthy beard you are sporting today, my friend. <laughs> Oh, this green vegetables, clearly. This old thing, I just, uh, just, it just grew over twenty plus years or more. Uh, oh, and, and the problem is now, if I get rid of it, uh, I resemble a fat baby. So oh. I have to keep it for the rest of my life. Oh, you resemble a beautiful baby. You're like one of those baby models that they put in the Sears catalogue. You're a beautiful baby. Oh, you're the best. That's very, very kind of you. I tell, I, I, I like when I do the research for shows like this. It's always through watching uh, other wrestling shows. It's it's through finding stuff on Twitter. Um, I was watching with my good lady. I was watching Paul Hollywood eats Japan. You sure were, my uh, friend. That's and exactly what you're and I, we we were watching, and then you you appeared. You, you burst into existence during that show. <laughs> And 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 my partner sat sat on the sofa. Went, I, I, I love him. I love him. That's amazing. And then as soon as, as soon as the voiceover went, Lady Bit is also a professional wrestler. I just felt this tap on my shoulder. Find them. Talk to them. God bless. Well, thank you for reaching out. I'm Ooh. very happy to. 
Today, mate. It's 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 both service for myself and especially fan service for for Alex, my good lady. <laughs> Hi, Alex, lady. God bless. Hi, Alex. Thank you very much for instigating this. God bless you. How, how was Paul Hollywood? Out of interest, he was wonderful. He was great. Very personal. Um, he uh, yeah, no, very personal. Very talkative. Um, very social. And he has uh, the most compelling eyes that I've ever stared into. His eyes are beautiful. They are this steely gray blue. And it's like a wolf. I looked at him and I was like, your eyes are amazing. I couldn't stop staring into his eyes, which um, <laughs> might have ended up a little bit weird from his perspective. But for me, it was great. They're mesmerizing. He seems to have a good time going around Japan with his health. I, I think so. He's got his whole, um, you know, he's all his car stuff that he does and everything, right? So to that end, the go-karts and all that kind of stuff, you know, he seemed to have a lot of appeal with that sort of thing. So. When, when was that film, by the way, out of it? Was that a while ago oh, now? It was pre-pandemic, so what, halfway through 2019, I think? God, in, in simpler times. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it weird now how we can say pre-pandemic and literally it's like a war isn't it like the whole world's been affected by it and it's like remember those magical days when you didn't have to wear a mask and when you didn't have to like now to travel you need to have documentation of your jab jab and all this kind of stuff and it's jab you get to do this no jab you get to do that it's, it's isn't it amazing how just two years ago it was such a different it feels yeah it, yeah it's and to think that, you know, we won't labor on about it too much because we've all lived it and everyone knows it. Um, but we've lived through, like, something they'll write about in textbooks. That's the bit that that keeps coming back to me. Like, that's the bit mm. that... We've lived through something they'll write about in textbooks mm-hmm. for years and years to come. Um, yeah, well, a world-changing event. It feels right that when talking about spending 12 months cut off from people that we love, uh, that we send you onto a desert island, Lady Beard. A, a metaphorical desert island on this occasion. How did I get here? <laughs> What's quite well, nice is where you're currently filming, it does look like you're just in the, the abyss. The abyss? <laughs> Check it out. I've got one light switch. Check that out. Hey, how's that for variation? <laughs> oh, I, I feel like if you go off to the right, you'll just reappear on the left. <laughs> Perhaps I will. Maybe we can do like that old escalator gag from the telly. <laughs> we're going to send you to at least a metaphorical one. And whilst you're there, we're going to give you uh, three wrestling matches to watch whilst right, you're on the good. island. So throughout the interview, uh, we will we'll go one after one after one, but we'll we'll talk, talk in between uh, each of them. But we'll start with your first wrestling match. What would you like your your first one to be, Lady Beard? Yeah, firstly, it was good of you to give me this entertainment option on the island. <laughs> to be, frankly, you know, clearly there's nothing else for me to uh, worry about, such as, you know, how to get food and water, how to survive the island. Don't worry about that, it'll be fine. What's to that? I got some wrestling, so it's all good. Um, okay, match, uh, we're starting with match, match, match number one, match number three we're starting with. We'll go with match we number one. Match number one. Um, match number one, I'm going to make it uh, that first time Osprey fought Ricochet in New Japan when it was just flip into flip into flip into flip into bump into flip into hit the ropes into flip into slam into off the top into catch into flip and it was just non-stop flips and flips and flips for 10 minutes. That was amazing to me. Um so one of the biggest regret is the wrong word because regret is not uh, the applicable uh, word. But 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 
one of the biggest you know, things I wish I could do in life is acrobatics. Um, it's, uh, I think it's amazing. I think watching acrobatics is the most incredible thing. I did a bit, like I did gymnastics when I was younger, but I'm just not good at it. I'm just not built for it, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I've done a bit in the ring, like moonsaults and that kind of thing. But it's really, if I could pick a thing that I could be, which I can't be, it would be a high flyer. So, because to me, it's just amazing watching all that stuff. So that match, Ricochet, Osprey, when it's just, it's incredible to me. I could watch it over and over and over again and see new things every time. It's amazing. It broke the internet from what I remember. Yeah, it was amazing. But what's interesting is all the old school guys hated it so much. That's what I found so interesting. Because to I them, like, I think it, it kind of, you know, it's that it's that old sort of grizzled term. It exposed the business uh, of, of of grown men pretending to hit each other. It exposed the business, <laughs> which with a business that we love. But mm. the, and but then this is it's something that happened over decades, didn't it? It was you know Harley Race got jip from Luthes for for exposing the business and 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 and, oh, all, and so on and so on and so on. But that one in particular, I remember there were non fans that that sent it me and went, "This is what wrestling's like now. This is amazing." And, and, and there were, like, as you say, the grizzled older wrestling uh, fans, the supporters, sufferers that were just like, no, this is it's not wrestling. Not the wrestling. It's not an arm drag for three hours. Um, <laughs> where were you when you saw it for the first time? Can you remember? I, I was in Japan. I was in Japan. I remember the internet lit up with it and I kept hearing about it and everyone just, but like the internet lights up a lot, doesn't it? You hear a lot of the time, oh, a dress that some people think is blue and other people think is... Like, the internet's always lighting up with some nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. But then, with Ricochet and Osprey, I kept hearing about it, and people who I genuinely trust were like, dude, if you haven't seen this match, you must see this match. It's incredible. So I watched it, and I was like, wow, they weren't lying. That was that was really something. Um, yeah, on the note of the grizzled old-school guys hating it all... Um, yeah, I don't feel the same way. I think it's amazing. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about wrestling, because I think wrestling... Uh, firstly contains something for everyone and secondly wrestling is free to go anywhere that wrestling needs to go um and uh yeah no i should not have started a new sentence i was happy with the end of that sentence <laughs> i'm really i'm really intrigued to get into how you got into the wrestling world because people will be listening to this uh hearing and seeing yourself for the first time and, and are about to meet a a, a phenom a cross-dressing wrestling heavy metal musician yes uh, that's a, me yes. a true triple yes. threat in the in the truest sense of the word but you say you're oh. in you're in japan when you discovered that match and I'm, I'm right in thinking that you went over to japan for an acting job and then just lived there that's basically what happened isn't <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit more it's okay so it's a long story i'm going to try and give you a very abbreviated version of events for those listening uh who are only listening and can't see my name's lady beard i'm from australia i now live in japan i'm a cross-dressing wrestler and metal singer here's how that happened um went through acting school in australia and uh, then i was training with a guy on jackie chan's stunt team who said you should go to hong kong because i'm also a martial artist so this, really this is how i got into wrestling you see from martial arts and then via stunts so he said you should go to hong kong i moved to hong kong i became an actor and a stunt actor and a voice actor in hong kong and that's where i actually started wrestling because i was always interested in wrestling because it kind of you know wrestling puts together all the things i was naturally interested in anyway which is you know martial arts and big character performance and all this kind of stuff um but in hong kong was the first time it was actually accessible to me so i started training because of the stunts background i learned relatively quickly um 
I had my first month, uh, sorry, my first match after I'd only been training for a month. And uh, I went out there. They said before the match, you know, what's your gimmick going to be? And I said, uh, I'm going to wear a dress and be called Ladybeard because uh, I've been a cross-dresser since the age of 14. That's another conversation we could have in a, in a while as well. Um, I went out there, uh, did my first match. Didn't really know what I was doing, but overnight became the most popular wrestler in Hong Kong. And so uh, then I started a music career singing heavy metal covers of Cantonese pop songs. And then I did a tour to Japan uh, singing heavy metal covers of Japanese pop songs and including wrestling in the show. And that went extremely well. So I moved to Japan. Photos of me went viral on the internet. And now I'm a celebrity. <sighs> it's, it's, your, it's your age old story. It's the well, it's a, tell as old as so. You know what? You know what, my, my, my lawyer grandfather, my lawyer father, <laughs> they, they could predict this coming from a mile away, couldn't they? My father was a cross-dressing wrestling metal singer before me. His father was a cross-dressing wrestling metal singer before him. <laughs> and his father was a vet. <laughs> Weirdly, but also a cross-dressing metal singing wrestling vet. Right. Um, <laughs> so to, to, to go back, I mean... On the wrestling side of things, um, what what got you into wrestling in the first place? Well, okay, so now it's an interesting story because I was uh, originally really into martial arts when I was. So I'm from Australia, and when I was growing up, wrestling actually wasn't on the TV very much. It was a little bit when I was really young, but then they took it off free to air TV, and it was only on cable. And the only time it was on free to air TV was like at two a.m. or something ridiculous. So I didn't get to watch that much wrestling. But what I did see, and it was back, it was either, it was East, uh, WCW and WWF back during the kind of the 90s. Um, what I did see, I thought was wonderful. And I was always interested in trying it. I had one of my mates who had cable TV. We had no cable. My mate had cable, so he could actually watch it properly. And so he would tell me every week about what had happened on Raw and SmackDown. And I was like, God, I want to watch the freaking wrestling. So I was always interested in it because it was always, like I say, it was a natural... Um, a natural conclusion to all the things I loved anyway. I was a martial artist and I was a performer. So it's, you know, I liked action performance. So those things in a specific content uh, context equals pro wrestling. So I was always interested in trying. Um, but in my city, the wrestling gyms were all on the other side of town. And it just wasn't accessible at all to actually train wrestling. Um, but I watched during the 90s, and I loved uh, X-Park. Do you remember X-Park? I do indeed. He's, he's been a guest on this show as well, so you're in, you're in good he company. No, really? Yeah, we, we had X-Park on, oh gosh, I think September, I think he, he popped by to say hi. Pick three matches no. just like yourself. My goodness. Hey, <laughs> if you get to talk to him, please send X-Park Ladybeard's love. He was massively inspirational. I certainly will. Because I was from Taekwondo, you see. My first martial art was ta from ta Taekwondo. So lots of kicks, lots of jumping around. So X-Park did all the jump kicks. And I was like, X-Park's my boy. He's, that's it. That, yeah, that was, he did that for years. And, mm. and, and I, I always, there was always stories about like, in terms of who was the toughest backstage. And because he had this martial arts background, if needed, yeah. he could hold his own. Plus his best mate was Kevin Nash. So that helped as well. Right, right. <laughs> right. If in doubt, bit the Kevin Nash button. But there was also, who was a Bischoff was also a legitimate martial artist too, wasn't he? He came he, from a karate base, yeah? He was indeed. Any chance he got, he'd put the, he'd put the attire on and call out Vince McMahon in the <laughs> late 90s. <laughs> He'd show up. Ah! <laughs> Fish off. You go. What a boy. What a boy. Um, with, oh boy. So with, 
you when you discovered wrestling then was that and through martial arts actually I was going to ask how did you how did you stumble into doing martial arts then was how did you find how did you get involved in martial arts rather I was always interested in it you know when I was very young I saw the karate kid movies back in the 80s and I was like mom and dad want to do karate and I did karate as a fat 6 year old and was terrible at it but then so I stopped that quickly but then when I got to high school we had taekwondo club in the school so then I started training taekwondo and I was kind of old enough to be able to actually do it which I couldn't really do when I was six. And so we went from there. Um, was there any ambitions to pursue martial arts uh, and taekwondo further than wrestling? Or was it just I how mean, the world ex- the world went? Well, so well, like I say, I started out as um, an actor and a stunt actor. So mm-hmm. after high school, I went through acting school in Australia. And I was also training martial arts hardcore. Like I was doing a... Blah, three hours a day, six days a week kind of thing in the martial arts when I went through university and whatnot. So I I took it very, very seriously. And then on the back end of that, um, I trained with this Aussie who had been on Jackie Chan's stunt team. So you can imagine the standard of training with someone like that was just exceptionally high, right? And just ridiculous, like backflipping off balconies and just just ridiculous stuff. And um, yeah, he would tell me, the Hong Kong Stuntman Association's motto was risk life, save money. So that, that's the kind of thing you were dealing with when you were working with this guy, right? So we were training in the Jackie Chan style. So if you've ever watched any of the Jackie Chan movies, I assume you see son of them. I, man, I can't, can't pronounce English words today. My lips aren't moving. I'm sorry, everyone listening. I'm making a lot of... If this were a promo... We would have done three, three, three hundred retakes by now. <laughs> um, uh, I can't remember. Jackie Chan. Yeah, so Jackie Chan. That style. You can see it's just hardcore. There's all the comedy in there, but at the same time, it's just brutal, like hard falls. Like Jackie used to get, you know, hit by cars and things, just ridiculous stuff. So that's... And the guys who are on his team, they are these guys who really are... They're born differently from normal people it's like i always say they backflip out of the womb right so they're just they have no fear and they would just do ridiculous stuff my trainer would say things like uh we were driving one night and we go past a train station and he goes yeah when i was younger i was gonna jump from the bridge and like catch the um the the like the dinger donger to catch the post it's like a 20 meter jump with a fall to a train track beneath it. It was like, yeah, I was you know, going to jump, catch the post. I'm like, what? Why? <laughs> just something to do. Just, this is the kind of, kind of guys they are, right? They just do crazy things. So that's the standard of person you're dealing with um, when you're dealing in Hong Kong-style stunts, right? Who are some of the other unsung heroes of, of the stunt team that you've worked with? Oh my goodness! Well, I mean, that trainer, his name was uh, his name was Paul, and he had he was an Aussie, but he had been on Jackie Chan's team. Um, and so he was the one who taught me at the time back in the nineties. There'd been two Aussies on the team, so there'd been Paul, and there'd been Brad Allen, who was the other one. Brad recently passed away, so may he rest in peace. Um, but Brad went on to Hollywood, so he did. He choreographed the action in uh, Hellboy Two, if you remember that movie. Um, he did, uh, he did a lot of movies, actually. He did that, one of the Peter Pan movies, <clears throat> Peter Pan movie from halfway through the noughties somewhere. I think he did the action in that. Hang on. Now I'm blanking on all the stuff Brad did. Brad did a lot of movies in Hollywood. I'm blanking on them at the moment, but he was the action designer for all these films, right? Um, he was, if you watch Jackie Chan's old movie, Gorgeous, 
there's a fight scene. There's two fight scenes with Jackie wearing all white against this British dude. No, sorry, he's Aussie. I'm sorry. Aussie dude. I can't believe I just call my own countryman British. I'm so sorry. I guess this Aussie dude wearing all black. And in both fights, that's Brad Allen. So you can watch back, go back and watch Gorgeous and you can see Brad. Amazing. Um, yeah. He's but just like, a remarkable standard that all those guys were held to. There was a story I used to get told that um, for everyone who did a movie with Jackie, your first movie with Jackie, everyone, Jackie would make you cry. Just because not just because the standard was so high and it was just what he demanded was such a high standard. It was just not no good go again. Not no good go again. Not no good go again. So everyone would end up crying. Jeez, he'd be worn out and just tearful and broken by the end. But just oh my goodness, just 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 look, get it right, or no one's going home tonight. Come on, just crazy stuff. Um, when I was so when I was then in Hong Kong, we're jumping around in time with this story a bit. But then, so I trained with Paul, and then I moved to Hong Kong, and I was doing stunts in Hong Kong. Um, I did this movie in Hong Kong called The Fortune Buddies, which is interesting. It's a pro wrestling movie. And the whole thing's on YouTube if you want to go and watch a uh, younger, clean-shaven, fatter ladybeard doing stunts in a Hong Kong movie. Um, it was this pro wrestling movie. At the time, they needed a, a stunt person who could, a stunt man who could also do pro wrestling. I was literally the uh, white one. I was literally the only person fitting those descriptions in Hong Kong. So I got the job, which was great. Um, but working with that team, there they had stuntmen from. It was like. This guy was from Jackie's team. This guy was from Chow Yun-Fat's team. This guy was from Sammo Hung's team. This guy was from Yun Bu's team. Just all the legendary Hong Kong action guys. This guy's from Jet Li's team. All those guys. There was one guy from everybody's team on this stunt team. So hanging out, hearing their stories was ridiculous. Um, One of them worked on, I think it was Police Story 2, one of those early Jackie Chan films back in the 80s or something. And he said he was really young at the time. He was like 16 or something. And he said he had to double the lead bad guy at the end of the movie. And the stunt is he jumps out of a helicopter and then he explodes. That's what happens in the movie, right? Straightforward. And Sorry? Straightforward. Straightforward. Exactly right. He dynamite strapped to him or something. I can't remember. For whatever reason, he explodes after jumping out of a helicopter. But this kid had to double this actor for this stunt. And what they used to do was, he said they would just... Because it was, like you say, risk life, save money. So it wasn't expensive Hollywood pyrotechnics and, like, a whole lot of safety people and so forth and doctors and whatnot. They strapped bags of petrol to his belt and with, like, a little charge. And they're like, all right, off you go, young man. (laughs) Sorry. So he jumps out of the helicopter. In the middle of the air, they set off the charge. Boom! Petrol blows up all around him. He's got to fall, I don't know how many metres, got to fall this long fall onto the mat whilst on fire. He hits the mat, they all come with fire extinguishers, they put him out and whatnot. And he said, back in those days, um, you couldn't just check the take straight away. You had to send the film into the lab to get it processed before it would come back and then you could see it, right? He said that night, um, for some reason, they were not sleeping in... They were all sleeping out, like, in swags under the stars for some reason. I don't know why all the stuntmen were camping. So he said he's in his swag. He said he was looking at the sky. There were all these stars in the sky. He remembered it was the most beautiful starry sky he'd ever seen. And he did not sleep a wink because he was so worried that the footage would come back and he'd have to do the stunt again. So the next day, the footage comes back. 
Mm, not enough fire. You have to do the stunt again. Oh, no. <laughs> so this time, before it was three bags of petrol around his belt. Now, five bags of petrol around your belt. All right, young man. Off you go. Out of the helicopter. Boom. He said he was. So... So, these are the kinds of adventures that you have when you're working in stunts. These are the kind of stories you hear. Was the, was the goal always to work in, in stunt acting when you, were, when you were learning in Australia, or did you have other goals? Um, I mean, I went through acting school because I was uh, really intending to be an actor who could do martial arts as opposed to a full-on stunt person who's jumping out of helicopters and getting set on fire and that kind of thing. That's kind of what I was going for. So in the same way as, like, Keanu Reeves goes and does John Wick and he does a lot of his own action, but then I assume he's doubled when he needs to be thrown out of a helicopter and set on fire. Um, that kind of thing was kind of what I was going for. But now this is very interesting because I moved to Hong Kong, sorted out a career for myself, and life was fantastic. And then that 2008 financial crisis came along and just wiped it out overnight. So here I am now. All right. I'm alone. I'm foreign. I'm unemployed. And I'm on the other side of the world. All right. Everything I built is gone. Now what? So um, yeah, I came to the very logical conclusion I could fix all my problems by becoming a cross-dressing wrestler and metal singer. When was the light bulb moment to go, I'm going to lean into all of that? <laughs> Well, okay, so it was post-financial crisis that I stumbled across the Hong Kong Wrestling Federation because what happened was I was watching a heavy metal show and there was a kid in the mosh pit wearing a shirt that said Hong Kong Wrestling. So I asked him about it and he said, yeah, I'm a wrestler. Want to come to training? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go to training. So it was, I met him on like, you know, two weeks later on a Sunday afternoon or something and we went out into the far-flung districts of Hong Kong to this industrial district and I met the guy who was running the federation, who was this kid, he was like a 25-year-old kid or something, and he's uh, he takes me up to their gym, and they have rented out this filthy, dusty space in an old industrial building, and they have a homemade ring in the middle of this dusty, filthy space. So, now, now it sounds terrible, and I'm, you know, being dramatic about it, but it was actually quite amazing. These kids had gone online and they had i think either found or purchased plans to make a wrestling ring they had gone and purchased the steel themselves purchased everything like the vinyl to wrap the ropes and everything they had diy'd this wrestling ring from nothing which is pretty amazing all things considered for a bunch of teenagers and you know 20 year olds um and here they were hong kong wrestling federation so they just launched it <laughs> themselves built the ring and just went this is our wrestling promotion yeah. And you know who that guy who was running that was? Go on. That was Ho Ho Lun, who represented Hong Kong in the first 205 Alive. Ho Ho Lun, no way! That's Cruiserweight Classic, I'm sorry. Yes, that's Ho Ho Lun. Yeah. Amazing! Oh, he's, yeah. oh, he's ace. He, we, we, he came into the show in Newcastle uh, before oh, the so world shut down. Yeah, yeah, Ho Ho Lun's been here. And uh, he's, he's, he's a, just a genuinely lovely, charming guy. Up, uh, you know, up for everything and fair play. That's I, I, that's a that's a great story of building it. You know, if you build it, they will come from Ho Ho Lun, yeah. isn't it? It's amazing, a- isn't it? Amazing though, go from some kid wearing a you know wearing a dirty t shirt going, I made a wrestling ring. What to see? To then being in WWE, just amazing, right? That's just it's. It's again. It's a testament to to how far he came and and, and what he did there. When you um, so financial crisis. The acting stuff's disappearing. Let's give wrestling a go. Yeah. You, how did you find 
learning the art of wrestling? Because I can imagine like so much of it is 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 character and personality, and and you know you only have to listen to thirty seconds of this interview to know that you know you've got that in spades. That's never going to be a problem. But in, in terms of like the 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 other side of it, like the the actual building of the wrestling and stuff, how did you find those first few days of training? Um, very interesting, actually. Now, it's somewhat deceptive. First things first, I went from my first day of training to my first match way too fast. A month is not long enough to learn how to be a wrestler. It's just kind of how it worked out. Um, I went in. Okay, so now it's somewhat deceptive because I went into wrestling training because I had the background with stunts. I was already used to falling and hitting the ground and this kind of stuff, right? So therefore, I could approximately bump already. And I was a martial artist, so I could approximately strike already. But now, here's the thing. The details are different and important. So, when you bump on a hard surface, say concrete, that's actually a different technique from bumping in a wrestling ring. Because in a wrestling ring, you need to use the ring and use the spring of the ring. And that's part of your technique of the bump. Whereas on concrete, it's your body and that's all you've got because the surface is so hard. The first time I ever got shoulder tackled, I took the tackle and I did a kung fu movie style reaction. So not only in wrestling, when you get shoulder tackled, you either take the tackle and you bump, or it's... And you no-sell, and it's two big men smacking into each other, followed by... And then someone goes again, right? Um, what I did was I did a kung fu movie reaction. So the shoulder comes in... I did this kind of thing, right? So... So, I watched back the video of my first match, and all the wrestlers are going, why are you doing that? Where you get shot or tackled? Why are you waving your arms around this? I was like, oh, that's what would you do in a movie? <laughs> <laughs> but you're learning on the job, essentially, aren't you? Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. You're learning on the job. And there's all kind of, also things like running the ropes and whatnot, you know, unless you're doing a specifically a pro wrestling movie, you're not doing that in movies and in stunts and in martial arts, are you? So... Things like that. You came in as Ladybeard. Uh, uh, yeah. What was the the reaction from from the fans and and your peers to the the, the cross dressing professional wrestler slash heavy metal singer? This is very interesting. And now, man, the Ladybeard story contains all these different long bits that need to kind of get compressed for interviewers. I'm sorry for everyone who's having trouble following. Um, let me summarize my life as a cross just quickly. When I was 14 years old, a friend of mine had a school uniform birthday party. I thought it'd be really funny if I wore my big sister's school dress. I did. It was a hit. From that moment on, I became a casual cross-dresser when I went to parties and rock and roll shows and things like that. Everybody loves it when a dude in a dress walks into a room. Now, it's a funny thing, right? Because... Um, I think my experience has sort of been the opposite of what a lot of transgender people experience in that they feel this need to express their gender, but society kind of tells them they're not supposed to and they feel crowded by it, or at least that's uh, my understanding of a particular transgender experience as it's explained to me. For me, it was kind of the other way around. I was wearing pants and everything was fine. And then everyone would be like, this jackass when I was wearing pants. But then I'd turn up wearing a dress and everyone would go, ah, look at this crazy guy. So it's like the world gave me a much better reception when I put on a skirt than when I put on pants. In fact, when I put on pants, everyone hated me. When I put on a skirt, everyone loved me. So it's like, uh, okay. So that was my you know, youth as a casual cross-dresser. I got to Hong Kong because in Hong Kong, it's such a conservative society. I cross-dressed over there. And again, just casual cross-dressing on the weekend, going like out to a heavy metal show or something. And because they're so conservative, they really loved it. They were like, you're the craziest, you're the funniest person I've ever seen in my life. 
they would just lose their minds over it. So I'm like, wow, wearing a dress. Who would have thought? So, 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 when it came time for this first match, and I'm getting asked by Ho Ho Lun, I'm getting asked, all right, so your in-ring gimmick, what do you want your in-ring gimmick to be? And I was like, I had this, you know, this this history as a cross-dresser, which I am, you know, very much summarizing the psychology and so forth of into a, you know, succinct package for this interview. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to uh, put on a dress and I'm uh, going to twist my hair into little pigtails. I had short hair at the time, so it was a whole lot of little pigtails all over my head. Put my hair in these little pigtails, and I'm going to be called Ladybeard. And so now all the other wrestlers in Hong Kong at the time, their gimmick was, I am a wrestler. <laughs> so I was the only one who had any kind of real character-oriented gimmick, right? So now I went in, and my plan was, all right, I'm going to be this big heel. So, because at the time I was, uh, I was the only foreigner, you know, my Cantonese was terrible. I had this thick foreign accent when I spoke Cantonese. Um, and I was going to go in wearing a dress thinking, thinking that it was kind of going to be like an Aussie wrestling reaction to wearing a dress in Australia. You walk out to the ring in a dress and the instant reaction from most wrestling fans is they drop the big, you know, the big G-A-Y, I'm not going to say the word, but they lots of yells of that. And then during your first match, you then need to win them over, right? So that's what it was in the Western world. Now, I kind of thought it was going to be a similar thing in Hong Kong, right? Um, but it wasn't. I went out to the ring, first match against Ho Holon. I go out there and they absolutely loved it. They loved the foreigner in the dress. They loved it. Um, and so, yeah, overnight, it was the most popular wrestler in Hong Kong. That's amazing. So, what did yeah. what did your peers make of that though? Because as you say, like they've cut, for the longest of time, they've been doing they've been doing the circuit as I am a wrestler, and then all of a sudden you are fresh faced, uh, in, in you know to some still wet behind the ears uh, with with a, with a with an over the top gimmick. And what's what's the reaction from the industry at large? Well, okay. So in Hong Kong at the time, there wasn't really an industry. You could call it a scene, I suppose. A scene rather than, yeah. <laughs> but the scene was exceptionally small. Like we had 10 wrestlers or something. The grand total people in Hong like number of people in Hong Kong who knew what pro wrestling is, like a thousand people or something. So it was, it was such a small community, right? So um, uh, from the other wrestlers, I think... It was kind of a <laughs> type reaction because because they get brought up in such a conservative fashion. Just the notion of wearing a dress is most of them were just like no, just but you can't do that. The whole the, now the cross dressing thing is very interesting once you start throwing in the cultural aspect of things, right? Because a lot of the Cantonese kids they would say things to me like I think you're really funny and I think you're fantastic but just be aware you can only get away with this in Hong Kong because you're a foreigner if I as a local did this and cross-dressed people would think I was insane to the point at which I just escaped the asylum and I was here to murder everyone so once you throw in the cultural aspect now it becomes a different thing so I've seen an element of this I think in Japan as well and I think that's one of the reasons I've kind of been popular in Japan and I saw a kind of a different uh, version of it in Hong Kong and I feel that the locals feel the locals felt 
an air of, uh, I guess, amazement at the fact that I could go into the ring cross-dressed and that I had the confidence to go into the ring cross-dressed because they were never going to do that. So do you think maybe, you know, they were kind of... They were in awe of the fact that somebody was able to go and do that and that was what where, where the love came from? Well, I think for the other wrestlers, that was part of it. And then on top of that, I think the other wrestlers probably weren't thinking that hard about things. I think they were thinking about their own match and then not necessarily very much beyond that. So um, there's that. Uh, in terms of the general populace, I think I was just this really funny and at the time fresh and unique um, foreign character who turned up. Um, I could speak a bit of Cantonese and most foreigners in Hong Kong never learn Cantonese. So that in and of itself is quite amazing. But then, of course, when I did speak Cantonese, I had this thick foreign accent, so I sounded like a moron when I spoke Cantonese. And so, but then also I'm doing that in a dress, and we did, back in those days, we did a lot of, it, it, the product was much different from what it is now. There was a lot of man in dress gets kicked in groin jokes, like things like that, right? And so, um, it, it, like, the comedy style was so waka waka, but they loved it. They were just like, ha! this ridiculous clown foreigner man! So, um, I just want to suffix everything I just said by saying, everything I just said, if anyone's offended by anything I just said in any form, my sincere apologies, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm trying to put into words what I think I observed in, in, uh, in another culture from the perspective of a foreign crossdresser, there's so many layers of sensitivity that get thrown on top of that that it's, you know, anyone who's offended by anything I said, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just trying to express what I think I experienced. You're seeing the world through through your own eyes, essentially. That's all it yeah. is. It's all we can do. Oh, it's, it's a unique lens as well. It's been a very unique lens. Um, the, the, you know, you went through the financial crisis and that really put the stoppers on on the stunt work. Uh, we've, we're just coming out of a global pandemic and I know it put the stoppers on a lot of uh, a, a lot of people in the world of entertainment again as well. Where are you at with, with the wrestling stuff now? Sort of there is some uh, normality in, in, in as much normality as we can find in, in 2022. Uh, right. With that coming back, where are you at in terms of the wrestling stuff? Well, I don't want to talk about future plans because uh, I have learned from bitter experience nothing ever happens the way you think it will. So therefore, therefore I keep discussion of plans on the backboard until they've happened. Um, uh, so everything we just discussed was my the beginning of my career in Hong Kong. From there, I moved to Japan and I started wrestling um, with DDT or in the DDT group. DDT used to have a company called Union. So when I first got to Japan, I went into Union as a Union wrestler. And Union was like a company owned by DDT. So it was like a subsidiary, right? Um, so I would do the big DDT shows, but it was sort of, sort of in the way that WWE would have Raw and SmackDown. Union was just one of their brands within, within the company. So started in Union. I spent about two years in Union. Then Union actually just like they folded the company and all the wrestlers all went somewhere. I went up to DDT. So then I've been in DDT. I would, for how long was I in DDT? Four years, something like that. Um, and then recently I became freelance. Basically halfway through the pandemic, I became freelance. Now it's an interesting thing. Um, we can understand, or I would ask you to understand that being uh, a foreigner in a skirt 
puts you in a very specific spot on the card. Like the foreigner in the skirt is most likely not going to be competing for the heavyweight championship because that's not the role of the foreigner in the skirt on the card. Here's what's interesting. The role on the card that DDT always likes to give to me, with the pandemic, that role disappeared. So it's like, okay. So, so, so I'm now, um, I'm currently a freelance wrestler. I haven't done any wrestling. I've done one match since the start of the pandemic, but I'll be frank, um, getting up personal and huffing and puffing with another human being is not really something I really want to get too much into whilst we've got a deadly virus, you know, rocking around. Um, so, no, so there's been very little since the start of the pandemic. But uh, what I have been doing, which I really enjoy, is I'm part of this company called Makai. Have you heard of Makai in Japan? Um, I I haven't heard enough about it. I'm hoping you'll explain it to, to more to myself and people who want to find out more about it. Um, Makai is amazing. Makai is a Japanese world, word which means underworld. And Makai is this kind of theater, live music, live pro wrestling crossover show so it's been put together um by this man who was uh, he was formerly he worked for the biggest entertainment conglomerate in japan and then he left that conglomerate and started his own company of his called makai and it's uh all the various wrestlers from the various japanese promotions uh work on makai and everyone uh plays different characters of i'm sorry does different gimmicks from their regular gimmick and huh, let me summarize it like this. It's the story of um, the ghosts of dead samurai uh, fighting demons in a parallel dimension in order to maintain the balance of good and evil on Earth. <laughs> so, so, um, the tale as old as time. Right, right. Tale as song as old as rhyme. Makai! I'm a ghost! <laughs> um, so, Shida Hikaru from AEW, she's on Makai, and she and I have worked together many, many times on Makai. She's back here at the moment. She's in all the Makai shows this year, um, from my understanding. So, these sound like so much fun to oh, be a part so of. Good. So, Ladybeard plays uh, Louis Froyce. All the characters are based on actual historic figures, yeah? So, uh, Shida plays uh, Tsuruhime, who is this... 16th century? No, no, something century. 15th? 10? 5? 4? In advance on 5. 5, 5. Go for 5. Go for 4. Go one, for 4. 22? And sold to the gentleman at the back. Medieval! Medieval <laughs> Japanese samurai princess. That was who Tsurahime was, and that's who Shida's character in Makai is based upon, right? My character is named Louis Froyce, who was a 17th century Portuguese missionary who came to Japan, and he documented that he was the first Westerner who came and lived in Japan and kind of documented the ways of the Japanese for the Western world. So I play him, the, uh, the, the actual historic figure, Louis Froyce. He came to Japan did a bunch of missionary things and a bunch of historian academia. And then I guess at some point he died in our story. Uh, me, Louis Froyce come to Japan to spread the word of God. And then I was murdered by one of my own clergymen. And then I spent 800 years suffering in hell. And then I found my way to the Makai world where I could finally vent my rage and my hate of the universe due to the injustices I've suffered. So I fight with this gigantic two meter long crucifix and it is absolutely fantastic. 
it sounds like it would be quite a cathartic experience for quite a few wrestlers who are looking for stuff to do, uh, maybe in a, coming out of a pandemic, and also for wrestlers who have kind of had this set character, the set persona for so long, and it allows them to 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 stretch that a little bit. It sounds really cathartic. Yeah, I think so. And a lot of the wrestlers are interested in acting as well. This is something people don't realize about wrestling. Like, I went through acting school, right? So I began as an actor. But a lot of the wrestlers who just went through the the wrestling system and the wrestling, you know, um, institution, a lot of them want to be actors. And they actually kind of, they kind of, you know, think to themselves, you know, I would love to do movies or something one day. So I think Makai is a wonderful opportunity for them to... Whilst they're still wrestling and they're still doing everything they love and they're still applying their skill set, they also get to be doing theatre. And I think that's something very beautiful. Um, if people want to find out more about Mokai, where, where's somewhere that we can direct them to as kind of like a starter's guide? They can go to a website. Brilliant. Mokai Shawjokin, which you can see put in the notes of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say I'll put it in the description, but you've said it for me. <laughs> you can also find them on social media. They're on Twitter. I think it's at Muckeye underscore official on Twitter. Is that correct? Uh, by the way, for everyone who's watching, I'm looking off screen to my manager looking for visual cues. That's what's going on with this whole interview as I look True off story. There is nobody really there. It's, it's, oh, he's, no, it's he's, he's, Lady Beard's in the abyss. <laughs> She's looking off to the left and seeing, seeing, your, seeing, seeing your back. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what's the Twitter, Shiori? Makai underscore official? Makai underscore official. So M-A-K-A-I underscore official. That's the official Makai Twitter. You can go there. And I guess on Shida, on uh, Shida Hikaru, on her social media, there's going to be a bunch of Makai stuff going up this year. So you can look at that too. It'll be on the, in, the, in the podcast notes as well. You'll find yes, it and in the podcast notes. <laughs> Pay attention to the podcast notes. Podcasters and people. Wait, no, you're the podcaster. Podcastees. Podcastees, I think they might be. 
to sip some fluid. Give Lady Beard one second. Have ladies. a little sip of some fluid whilst I set up the next bit. So we, we very much we've, we've ticked the old wrestling box, and I do want to talk about uh, the the other part of your triple threat, which is the cool. uh, which is the heavy metal musician part of it. And we're going to do that after we get your second wrestling match. So uh, Ricochet and Will Ospreay, uh, their 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 viral flippy outing from yes. a few years back was your first one. What's your yes. second one going to be, Lady Beard? My second one, my goodness, I don't know the name of this match. All right, I think it was 2018, and I think it was on DDT's Peter Pan show. We've missed a second mention of Peter Pan in this podcast, my goodness. Um, The DDT, their big show every year is called Something Something Peter Pan. I can't remember the whole name of it. Um, So, oh my goodness. So the one in 2018, so I was wrestling on it with um, my old uh, tag team partner, um, Reika Psyche. God bless her. Um, Now, all right. Okay. So the match in question was Joey Ryan versus Dan Shokudino. You know who Dan Shokudino is, yeah? Uh, Yes. For those who don't know, let us know. For those who don't know, Dan Shokudino is a Japanese wrestler in DDT who does an offensively stereotypical uh, gay gimmick, but it's kind of like the kind of gay gimmick that was done on, like, Aussie TV in the 1980s. It's sort of trying to kiss men and trying to slap men on the ass and that kind of thing. So um, uh, just quickly, political correctness has not really made it to the Far East. So again... Anyone who's offended, it's hey, it's not my gimmick. It's, we're not trying to offend anybody. I'm just trying to tell you what's going on. The match... Okay, so so the day starts, yeah? We're all arriving at the venue. Joey turns up. I'm like, oh, hi, Joey. We go through how have you been and everything. And Joey says to me, well, well, 18 years ago when I started wrestling school, however many years it was, he goes, I had no idea that one day I would participate in an anal explosion time bomb match. I'm like, what did you just say to me? And he goes, that's my match this evening. It's an anal explosion time bomb match. Here's the match! My goodness. Um, they had a Japanese, a famous Japanese comedian who's on TV and whatnot, and he's at the venue. And he is there in support of Dan Shokudino in this important match. And uh, Joey Ryan is there as an American, very patriotic and proud of being an American. And what Joey has done is he has organized um, for this Japanese comedian to be kidnapped. This is all happening on the video screen, by the way, after Joey enters the ring. You see, there was one video package after another. On the video screen, Joey has organized for this Japanese comedian to be kidnapped. And Joey's goons have inserted... Asserted a time bomb into his anus. So now there's a time, a countdown clock going on throughout the match, and it's counting down until this anal um, time bomb will explode. And so Dan Shokudino now has to save his friend, the very supportive Japanese comedian, and um, another wrestler called Sasadango, um, Sasadango Machine was also involved. His normal gimmick is he comes into the ring and does PowerPoint presentations. That's kind of all his matches are structured around PowerPoint presentations. So then he shows up, but he's cosplayed as President Trump. This is when Trump was the president. Because, of course, he's here to support Joey Ryan, the American. And now there's this strange moment when he seems to have... There's a love triangle going on between 
between between Don Chabudino and the referee and this Trump cosplaying Sasanago machine, and it was it's the strangest match I've ever seen in my life. I had a mate from Australia was there. He said halfway through the match, he took out his phone and started filming just so that he could prove that this match actually happened. He said it was the most insane thing he's ever seen. So this there's this countdown and somehow I can't remember the end of it because I was standing backstage watching on the monitor and I'm just like, what is happening? It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. We somehow get through the end of this. Uh, somehow Dunshoku goes over. Joey has lost the match. Time bomb removed from anus. The Japanese are all happy. Wrestling, I said, this is a, a phrase I use quite a bit when talking about it. Wrestling is is at its best when it's uh, inherently bollocks, and <laughs> and I love the fact that it is a medium that is by some taken incredibly passionately seriously. Yes. yes. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the anal explosion death match, <laughs> and it's all in the same. Sort of, it's in the same industry. It happens on the same night. It'll be on the same night. You put time bomb into heavyweight championship for the world. It's ridiculous. So, <laughs> this is one of the things about being in, um, particularly, particularly the DDT group and their matches in Japan. A lot of what happens in the ring, of course, everyone like the match is planned, but a lot of what happens, you don't. Know, especially as the foreigner, you don't really get it until it's happening in front of you in the ring or happening to you and around you in the ring, right? So my guess is with that match, Joey had Joey had a very broken English explanation given to him of what was going to happen. And he kind of went, okay, okay. And what you do is you say, all right, so what are my bits? What do I have to make sure I don't miss? And then the rest of it unfolds around you. And you as the wrestler are discovering this match in real time with the audience in the ring. So this happens a lot with the, with the DDT shows, right? So Joey came out of that and I was like, dude, that was a fantastic match, man. That was, I have no idea what happened, but I loved every second of it. Um, we did this match in union back in like my second year in Japan. Oh, there was this match. So what they used to do with the union shows is um, at the end of every show, all of the union wrestlers who were kind of like, you know, the union wrestlers who are wrestlers of the company would come into the ring and we'd do a kind of a see you next time kind of gimmick, right? Um, and no one would ever explain to me what the script was for these. So I'd end up in the ring and there's just all this stuff going on around me. And I'd be like, what's going on? There was one when the match, like the, the last match was this insanely intense um, a match for the tag team championship and it was a case of two massive kind of super heavyweight guys versus two smaller sort of martial artsy type guys right one of the most intense matches I've ever seen there's blood and sweat everywhere by the end of it halfway through the match there's an interference and so then the big guys go over but then it's like no we're not prepared to let the match end like this restarts and then they restart just crazy craziness off the top rope just ridiculous slams insane match we get to the end finally the two big dudes have won cover one two three all right two smaller guys you see they're sweating and all upset and ah, oh, oh. big dudes are like yes get the microphone one of them goes we beat you we knew we were going to beat you. 
Now, where World Tag Team Championships at a time like this, there's only one thing left to do. Sing a song! So, now all the wrestlers, we have to go into the ring and we're singing this We're Brothers Forever type <laughs> Japanese song. One of them told me this is going to happen. These, there's blood everywhere. I've just seen these two guys almost commit a double homicide and they're singing this happy ah, Brothers Forever song. There were these two Aussies who I had met at the uh, merch table earlier in the night who were in the audience. I look over them and I go... No idea. Wrestling's ace. Yeah, when you get to Japan as the foreigner, it's next dimension as well. It really is just, well, whatever this is, this is what's happening around me. <laughs> there's, a, there's a beautiful connection with, with yourself, DDT, and us here at Cultaholic, which, which gives, me, this gives me a chance to, to reference because uh, Jack, the jobber, Jack King, who works for us, uh, he's wow. in the office next door. He, like yourself, is a former DDT Ironman heavy metal weight champion. <laughs> God bless. Good job, Jackie. My people. Good <laughs> <man>. <laughs> and for those who, who aren't aware of, of of that particular title, like it's it's amazing. It's it's the hardcore championship from the WWF and the twenty four seven championship, but on acid. <laughs> It's yeah, it's really it's good. it's amazing. Like what was, with your experience, I think you because you grabbed it like three times. I don't know how long collectively your your reigns were because they can sometimes be minutes. In uh, some- dude, se- seconds, seconds, around two seconds. For two of those holdings of the belt, it was a case of we had eight people in the ring. Roll up, one, two, three. New champion, they get rolled up. One, two, three. New champion, <laughs> they get rolled up. One, new champion, and so I was that kind of champion. The other part of your triple threat, we've talked wrestling, uh, we've, we've talked uh, your, your cross-dressing journey that yeah. you've been on that, that brings us to where we are today. Um, the, the heavy metal side of things, um, yes. who were some of your early inspirations in, in that particular genre? Uh, genre. Um, I've loved heavy metal since I was a teenager. I went through alternate rock into punk rock into heavy metal, and that's how we go through those those late 90s new metal bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit. We went into actual heavy metal. We went through Slipknot and that kind of thing, and then now into very heavy metal like Deathcore and things like that. Um, so, so original influences, uh, there's a band called Seven Dust, and I heard them for the first time when I was like 16. I love Seven Dust. So uh, that singer, LeJean Witherspoon, I love his voice because he can do uh, really great screams but also really beautiful clean singing. And that was always kind of a um, you know, an aspiration of mine, which I yearned to do, right? Because I love heavy metal. And I wanted to sing heavy metal, but it was never practical because I could never scream without hurting myself. But I knew it was possible because he could scream and still sing really nicely. So I was like, ah, it's possible. So him, Christian Machado from Il Nino, and then uh, Corey Taylor from Slipknot. Those are my three big influences. Where did you go? Well, where do you begin on a journey to learn? Because it's a very, as you say, like, there's there's potential vocal damage if you don't do it properly. So so where yeah. did you go to, to to hone and learn that style? Well, this is interesting. In high school, I really wanted to go join bands and sing metal, but I was I was sitting in my bedroom trying to learn how to scream, going no no no, because I would hurt myself every time I tried. So I could never figure it out. So I'm like, all right, I can't be a heavy metal singer because I can't scream. I'll be an actor. So I go through acting school, go to Hong Kong, become a voice actor. Now, this is very interesting. When I was voice acting, I was dubbing Japanese anime into English. And I learned how to scream through dubbing monsters and things like that. 
there was something about having the image in front of me that gave me some kind of feedback when I could stop worrying about my throat and I could just let things go. And now suddenly I had the ability to scream safely. So that happened. It's very ironic. I was like, I want to be a heavy metal singer. Can't. I'll be an actor. Being an actor taught me how to scream. Now I can be a heavy metal singer. So... So is it like psycho? Is it a little bit psychosomatic then? Like the the fear of damaging the voice would 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 add I to think, it. Well, okay. The only, like the way to not damage it is just to have correct technique. Mm. So uh, without going through the it, what that means, um, it's just a matter of putting your mouth in the correct shape, doing the correct thing inside your throat, and having your lungs deal with the air in the correct way. That's the way to do it, right? So now. When we were in acting school, the basis of the acting technique I learned is called thought processor, thought processing. And it's basically the way you do it to make a, a realistic convincing performance is you have to make you have to make imaginary memories and you make them into photographs and then you wrap them around yourself and then turn them into color movies. And this is how you create a fake memory and it's off the back of these fake memories that you can do your realistic performance, right? I think one of the reasons I couldn't scream uh, was because I didn't have that kind of um, visual stimulus with me originally. Once I had that in the form of I had a thought process on a screen in front of me in the form of an anime monster that I was dubbing, I think that's actually what helped because I could bypass all that worry about hurting myself and I could just naturally react to the image. I didn't realize how much of it was was visual. That's 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 really interesting. We are, you know what? We are, we are going deep in this podcast, my friend. You are learning a lot of things. Hey, anyone who wants to be a uh, cross-dressing, wrestling, metal singing, stuntman, actor, voice actor, this is a masterclass for you, friends. What stuff is there that you do on the regular to, to? Because obviously, you know, you've got the technique down, which which certainly helps your voice, but it certainly doesn't stop sort of the voice being hurt at all so what sort of steps do you take normally after after recording after a gig to to keep your voice in good check in good form you know what hot showers hot showers turn off the fan fill the room with steam it's the steam you want to suck in steam that's one of the reasons why everyone sounds so good when they sing in the shower it's partly because the acoustics from the shower arcove and it's also from the steam because you're sucking in steam and steam soothes your voice. So if you get an injury, you can suck in steam. Yeah, you suck in steam for 10 minutes and that'll soothe and heal your ruined voice or your ruined throat. Well, the more you know. I like that. Mm-hmm. Here's a, ran- a random one. Do you still have your tonsils? Yeah, as far as I can tell. Do you want to look? Oh, go on then. <laughs> there they are. <laughs> Perfectly healthy ones. Because I because I struggled with tonsillitis for years. And the, the moment that I, I had them out when I was like 30. And the the, the moment I had them out, like it, the range changed. But I, I didn't go. I didn't have a bad throat ever again. And I was just oh, wow. curious as to how, like, obviously you've still got yours. So it doesn't impact your voice in any way. I was just intrigued right. to know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know any of the medical parameters of a tonsil <laughs> and um, how it operates. I apologise. Um, no, that's fine. If you really want to know, don't worry. It's 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 normally part of the interview where we ask about tonsils, so I can say that we've done that. We've done the we've done the tonsil bit. <laughs> we've asked about tonsils. It's a weird caveat that we have. Let me ask you a question, Tom Campbell. Let me ask you. Go a question. on then, Lady Beard. How is it that this pro wrestling podcast came to be? Okay, well, um, 
I joined Cultaholic in 2019. And, and I, so Cultaholic already existed. It already it was already a thing. It was an established uh, bunch of lads. Uh, I essentially yeah. became <clears throat> I essentially became the fifth Beatle by joining an established group of people. And yeah. uh, and and I when I came in, I the big thing I wanted to do was was work on their on their podcast outlet on the audio because I'm a radio presenter as well. So oh. I wanted to I love the audio medium. So I was like, I've got a bunch of ideas for stuff I want to do for podcasts and and production and stuff like that. And um, I, I sent a list off to to my boss to Adam of like here's some here's some things I'd like to do. And one of the last things I wrote was. Desert Island Graps as a play on Desert Island Discs, which is a radio, BBC Radio 2 show. Oh, sorry, BBC Radio oh. 4 show uh, here in the UK. So I thought, oh, I'll just put that down. And I didn't think any more of it until he messaged me a couple of days later and said, explain Desert Island Graps to me. And I was like, oh, um, you pick wrestling matches to watch on a desert island. It's like one of the last ideas I thought. And he went, yeah, d- do that. Let's do that, shall we? Do, do one a week. I was like, and and, and uh, 139 episodes later, here we are. <laughs> It's still a thing. You do have you do have a lovely voice, I must say. You oh. have a beautiful tone and timber to your voice. Stop it. Tell me about this radio presenting. <laughs> I, well, uh, <laughs> I feel I feel like I've, I've done my desert. I was, well, we'll do a little bit. Um, I <laughs> used to work for um, a radio group called Heart in the UK. I know Heart, yes. Yes, I used to work for Heart. And hey. they made a bunch of changes to, like, they... they basically centralized everything in 2019 so uh i was told yeah we don't need you from may so thankfully i was already doing a little bit of part-time stuff here and uh, adam just went let's come work for us full-time so here we are so so i was uh, I'm, i'm i'm very blessed that like the stars aligned in that way but my good lady works for the bbc so she works at bbc radio newcastle and oh, so I was so I, as soon as I was told that I was being sent up the road at heart, um, I went through uh, her to get to the, the manager there. And I said, oh, do you fancy having a, a chat at some point or maybe go for a... And he messaged back saying, I know why you're messaging me. And I'm gutted that well, I'm gutted what you're going through. But let's catch up next week. And so since then, they've just said, look, we'll bring you in as just a cover presenter. So whenever we so they 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 throw me stuff to do, like I do weekends for them now. And just whenever people need time off, I was on last night until about 10 o'clock just covering because right. somebody's off. So it just, it keeps me busy and it, and it keeps me, like radio was always, as much as I've always loved wrestling, radio has always been my, my other love. Like my, it's walked beside me for, for years. So the, the, I'm blessed, so blessed, mate, that I get to, to get up silly early in the morning to talk to you and I get to go and do radio stuff and I get to do everything. Like I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the lucky, I'm the luckiest guy. I'm genuinely the luckiest guy. That's fantastic, man. Radio is a wonderful medium. I love doing radio you, as well. Tell me about your experience in radio. Well, radio, not that much, but voiceover a lot. Oh, like, yeah. Radio is doing radio interviews and so forth. There's something, I think there's something very pure about when you're interviewing in the booth, doing a radio interview, because mm. it's so silent and it's just me, you, and these two microphones. And that's all it is. And I think there's something very pure and beautiful about that. It's 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 very it's intimate, but being also very far away. Yeah, I think so. There's a power you, to can it. You, can you mix up your voice for one second? So let's say let's say you're doing your um your your smooth 11 p.m. Okay. Welcome back to the BBC voice. Okay, so it'd be something like um. 
And that's the new one from Ed Sheeran. It's BBC Radio Newcastle. It's just coming up to midnight, the latest where you are on the way after 12. And after 12 o'clock, we'll be finding out what is your favourite biscuit. Why not reach out to us? <laughs> that's, that's as good as I do it on form. That's, that's a great late night voice. That's apparently, I'm told, when you're negotiating, this is the voice you should use. The low voice. Makes, low voice and... Makes people unconsciously feel comfortable. So. Oh, Good for negotiations. The more you know. That's what an FBI negotiator said. Oh, oh really? Yeah. When did yeah. you Chris When did you talk Voss. to an FBI negotiator? I read his book. His name is Chris Voss. He has a book called Never Split the Difference. It's very interesting. You can look at him on YouTube, and he talks about the late night FM radio DJ voice. And the re- and it's quite a disarming tone. Which is probably exactly why right. the, the, the late night shows do get those people going, Oh, I've had a terrible day, I've had a terrible like you people open up more because it's a it's a disarming tone. Oh, that's interesting. People as callers they open up more. I find the one technique I was always taught is when you when you are in an interview and the the most powerful thing you can do <laughs> it's weird saying this in an interview. The most powerful yeah. thing you can do is say nothing. Because like when someone's answering a question, the instinct is always to jump in and kind of lead it when it goes quiet. But the best thing you can do is be quiet and then be quiet still and then be a little bit more quiet and then be a little bit more quiet. And you'll be surprised where it goes. Um, Yeah, you are right. That's when you'll get pure gold from people. Because like you say, you feel a human need to fill that empty space. You know who does the best radio? Australia. And that's not just because I'm speaking to you. Like, in terms of when I, w- when I was working full-time, uh, I would so often listen to places like Kiss and, and, and listen to Hamish and Andy in particular. Hamish and Andy. They, yes. they, they are amazing at what they do. They, they, they still do podcasting, but gosh, they're a miss on radio. They really are. <laughs> Yeah, ah. I th- do. You, do you think so, or is that not the case in I've Australia? I've got to be honest. I, I'm not very familiar with them because the whole enough. time I've been on air, I've lived overseas. So I'm sorry. No, 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 don't, no, don't be. No, I, I imagine that might be the case because you've been there for a long time. For my generation, it was American Rosso. Do you know them? I know American Rosso. Oh, okay. uh, American Rosso were the ones that I listened to. Yeah. Was Carl and Jackie O after you left as well? No, that was them. No, Carl and Jackie O. That was on the same different station, same time as American Rosso. Yep. Mm. No, I know Carl and Jackie O. Okay. So now, give me your, give me your um, four p.m. drive home voice. Okay, four p.m. drive home voice. I guess it'd just be the same as this one. I think. That, I think that the uh, the. Whilst, of course, you're talking a lower timbre for the evenings, I was always taught that like, you don't really have a radio voice. You might change the energy, but the mm. radio voice is sort of your more natural voice. Because over in the UK, uh, the the cliche is, oh, and welcome, welcome to the show, my darling. Coming up in a minute, we're going to uh, check on the roads for you. And uh, <laughs> won't believe this crazy story about dogs in the news. We'll tell you after the break. Like, that's the, the cliched radio voice. But that the one great. one thing I was always told was just try and talk as you normally would, uh, like talk yeah. in a normal conversation. And I think that's probably why uh, it's, for some, it's quite jarring. Because if I do radio, I just go, oh, hello. <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah, good. Oh, you, oh, you're up, are you? Hello. And it's just that it's quite irreverent, and and I think radio needs that. It makes it a little bit more personal. 
But do you feel particularly if you're doing the afternoon drive, you need to add a particular, an extra smile, an extra oh, kind of... always freedom. smile, always smile. Um, and, and I think breakfast mainly is where you kind of give it that little extra um, irritating oomph because I mean, because I love doing, I did a breakfast show for like three and a half years and I love doing that time of the day anyway. So it wasn't difficult to fake, like being in a good mood at six in the morning. But, right, really? Yeah. I, I'm you more, had to get up at three, read the news before you went on at six, that kind of thing. Yeah, that was that was that was my life. I mean, the, my my shift patterns here are like six from six in the morning. I'm always here at six, so. Really? And and it's just yeah. and it's and I'm I am at my absolute best like first thing in the morning, like getting up nice and early and just sort of having like almost half a day's work done before every, any, anybody else is awake. Like that's. That's my energy. Like, you know, when, when we arranged this and I was looking at the time differences and I said, oh, four in the afternoon works for you. Brilliant. Well, that's cool. That's seven in the morning for me. So I'll be, I'll be a couple of hours into the day by that point. So it'll be fine. <laughs> Bless you. I appreciate you doing it. That, okay, great. You are the early bird gets the worm. That's exactly what The Rock says. You watch The Rock interviewed and he's getting up at four to work out twice before everyone else has woken up. Uh, that, I, I like The Rock's um, mindset of always have an anchor in your day. Like the one thing that he says is always have like a like a routine that you do every day. Uh, for him, it's obviously lifting a stupid amount of weights. But are you a, are you a morning person? Um, not really. My natural rhythm, if I'm left to my own devices, I'll kind of sleep from about three in the morning till about eleven a.m. or so. So that's kind of just my normal pattern. It's three in the morning. So, you, so you're so you're a night owl then? Yeah, I suppose so. It's not by choice. I would rather be an early morning person, if I'm honest, because uh, I I do like it when I am awake that early and I've got you know I'm not bleary eyed and ruined. I really like being awake that early, but I just naturally I have I struggle with it. I get it, and also if you're staying up late doing gigs with baby beards, baby beard, yes, little lady beards, brand new kawaii metal group. Baby beard, let me explain two young Japanese pop idols. One lady beard, put them together. Two babies, one lady beard equals baby beard. It's an amazing phenomenal, ladies and gentlemen. What you need to do right now is head on down to the old YouTubes, type in baby beard, and watch the music video for our first single, Nippon Kara Konnichiwa, which means hello from Japan. It's quite the adventure. Then you can watch our second music video, Pianizer, bit of a different tone, but not less exciting, believe you and me. Then you need to head down to the Insta McGram, the Tiki Talkie, the 2020, put in baby beard underscore Japan, and while you're there, might as well put in lady beard underscore Japan, press law follow, press like, press subscribe, and we'll see you in the cyberspaces, and increasingly as this pandemic ends, and the world opens up, we'll see you on the live stage, very close to you, and and coming up next is <laughs> that's, the, that's the nice big cell. Take a breath. Take a breath. How did how did Baby Beard come together? So I was in another group. It was a similar formation. Me and two cute little girls back in 2015, 2016. We had a song called Nippon Manju, which went viral on the web waves. It's now on 33 million views on the on the, on the YouTube's, I believe. You can watch that if you like it. Um, that group fell apart due to politics and internal reasons and all that kind of nonsense. Then five years when I wasn't allowed to do another group like that because politics and internal reasons and show business and all that kind of thing. But now finally I can. 
can. So it's been very clear to me, traveling around the world, performing at anime conventions and wrestling and whatnot over the past five years, everybody wants to see me do that formation. Everyone loved me with the two cute little girls, me screaming and dancing, the girls singing and dancing. Um, in songs, the style of Nippon Manju, so we said that's what everyone wants to see. Let's do that. So we're doing it. And to, to get a project like this started, like I said, because we're still not quite out of the pandemic and there's still so much you want to do. And you mentioned there in, in, in the beautiful introduction uh, to the band, you you do have hopes of a tour, plans oh, for a tour. Oh, it's oh. it's so hard to say in it because we don't want to jinx anything. Oh, my goodness, my friends in the United Kingdom, my friends in Newcastle, my friends in Liverpool, my friends down in Brighton, or Lancaster, or Yeovee, London, wherever you are, baby beards coming for you. I can't necessarily say 2022 because there's no certainty of that at all. But maybe 2023, maybe 2024, wherever you are, you need to make sure you are well prepared for the baby beard experience when it comes to you. I'm excited that you said Newcastle. Yeah, of course. That that's that's us. It'd be amazing. Make make. you could tell me if I'm good. I had to learn a Geordie accent in drama school for a play that I did. I had to do a Geordie accent. Is this a Geordie accent? Because I studied. I was going to say, when you death. start it, let me know. <laughs> well, really, it's not a Geordie accent, really. It's, okay. it's, it's Scouse. That sounds quite Scouse, actually. It's that's a, Scouse. That's quite I Scouse. Don't on, I don't know what's going on in your country anymore. Uh, <laughs> 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 that that did sound Liverpoolian more than more than Geordie. Oh, okay. Well, sorry. No, no, don't, no, no, because um, Geordie's a difficult one because it's not quite the North because it's beyond the North. <laughs> it's beyond the North. Uh, and it's not quite the North West. It's not the West either because that's that's where you've got that sort of Scouse, like, phlegm to it. Um, the easiest right. thing to do to, to click into a Geordie accent is to start a sentence by going, I'll reach. I'll reach? I'll reach. Our race? What? <laughs> what? I'll read, man. I'll read, pet. How you do? How you doing, pet? I feel like I'm gonna go into Jamaican. I'll be man. <laughs> it's a, it can. I'm I'm I am notoriously crap at accents. So most of the accents <laughs> I do do become Jamaican. <laughs> <laughs> What what are the words you're saying? A Reese? Uh, a, what? Um, it's meant to be all right, but all right. so so written down, it would look like um, it would look like all a r l r e e t all reet a r l e e t all reet all reet there you go that's good all reet all reet so can you say Geordie in Geordie Geordie. 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 Okay, okay. I've forgotten this accent, I suppose. Look, it was 20 years ago. Or it was a long now. time ago. No, no, you, you, no, what was the, no, the, to, to, to salvage that, it was a Scouse accent that you did, and it sounded really nice. All right. Well, thanks. That's... I watched Anton Deck. I watched Anton Deck to try and learn my Geordie accent. <laughs> They're good ones to watch, actually. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Watch Alfida Zane Pet from the 80s as well. There's, that's a, that's a. <laughs> Your country, man. You guys have some gold going on over there in the UK. My goodness. Alvina Zaypet was a, was a deep joy. It was a deep joy. A bunch of Geordies going bricklaying in Germany with hilarious results. 
Jimmy oh Nails, fi- Jimmy Nails, finest hour. Jimmy Nails. Um, are you now? Hang on. Are you a wrestler yourself? Have you wrestled? I, I that was I just. I just totally took it in a new direction quickly, and then your I screen's gone black. That's fine. Really I fixed it. <laughs> um, I, I I've wrestled one entire match, um, okay. and and it was it was horrible because I was I was oh. ill trained for it. I, I I did some stuff as a heel manager for a promotion, and it's just the best fun. It really is. Um, but um, that's as far as I'll go. I've got no interest in actually becoming a wrestler full time. Um, there's talented folk like yourself that, that, that will do an amazing job with that. I'm happy just to, to talk about it. Okay, that's, that's where I'm, I'm happy to, to. I like being a manager. Being a manager is fun. Because that's where I could, go, you know, when you've got somebody um, like, like, my, uh, like my client, Mickey the Dragon. Ah. Mickey the Dragon, who uh, was uh, an excellent wrestler, didn't do much in the way of talking. So I'll do your talking, you do your wrestling. We're a dream. I team. see. We're a dream combination. But no, I was. Um, I've never been, never been intrigued to do it, other than that one match I had where I was. It's on YouTube. You can seek it out, and it's it's pretty miserable. Um, not 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 for the two other people involved, but for me, who was who was out of breath, just just getting into the ring. <laughs> I was Which one of those. I think when you you pump yourself up so much, and then and then the match starts. Two minutes in, you go, oh, a bit out of breath, and you go, oh no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, I find it creeps up on you. Oh, sorry, no, that's totally the wrong thing to say. It does not creep up on you. You find, you find, you find, you find your guest. It happens real fast. So you think you're doing fine. And you're like, yeah. Then suddenly, <laughs> and you realize I can't even like I can't hide this. There's lots of people watching. I just have to to push through it, and I'll and I'll figure it out at the end. But the uh, the, the the match ends with me taking a taking a code breaker, and I was so relieved to take that code breaker. It's just like, we're, and we're done. <laughs> that was a long twelve minutes. <laughs> What was it Newcastle Wrestling? What it was, was a, a company called Main Event Wrestling in oh, in I Newcastle. Uh, other, okay. Otherwise, I do. I'm a ring announcer. I used to work as a ring announcer. I don't do that so much yeah. anymore. But that was good fun. Like, I, so yeah, I'm always happy to get amongst it a little bit and do more. That's awesome, man. That's fantastic. I, I have to ask, uh, as yourself, uh, as you know, as a wrestler uh, working in you know the heavy metal music world as well, uh, a former a, a stunt man. I say former, but I would imagine you know. Should the should the time arise, get back amongst it. Um, voiceover artist. Are there other things that you want to do? Um, yes, but again, I don't want to talk about. Okay, that's fine. That's that. That's right now, I'm doing my amazing new group, Baby Beard, and you need to head to the internet and put in Baby Beard underscore Japan. Press like, press follow, press subscribe, and I'll see you in the web waves and very soon on a stage near you. <laughs> We'll get to your third and final match and we'll do some more plugs and stuff at the end. So we've got one more match for your Desert Island, sir. Uh, what would you yeah. like your third and final one to be? Third final match for my Desert Island. Uh, we have already spoken about him previously, but uh, the first one, The Rock versus Cena at WrestleMania. Amazing. To me, one of the greatest matches that's ever happened. And because it's not just the match, it was the whole build-up to the match. They built it over, you know, six months or something ridiculous. Um, promo after promo after promo, week after week. Really interesting promos, like when it, when it was the, the John Cena rap versus The Rock concert and that kind of thing, which they did in Nashville. Massive build-up. Two wrestlers who, at the time, were basically the top of the business. 
in terms of you know, obviously wonderful wrestlers, but also their brand, their public image. They were the top guys. Long match. Of course, it's the match, is it not? When The Rock pops his, he injures his thingamajig, injures his hip thingamajig bone poking out like a few minutes into the match, but he keeps on going anyway. Huge match. False finish, false finish, false finish. Huge match. They start hitting each other with one another's finishes. Amazing. There's that. At the end, The Rock's kicked out again, and Cena goes, well... Tried everything else. The Cena goes to do the people's elbow, but the rock catches him into rock bottom. Just amazing, amazing, as far as I could tell. The build, as you say, it was a it was a long one. I, I it was it was even longer than six months because they because the rock threw down the challenge the night after WrestleMania 27. And oh, so that's right. WrestleMania. Right, yeah. So I only I only remember that because like the crowd were like they were up for they were up for them fighting, and then as soon as he said, as he said WrestleMania 28, there was like a bit of a dull from the crowd, like. Oh, that's ages away. Well, a year away. <laughs> you a year keep this away. But <laughs> I have forever been a fan of of a long build to a match. Mm. Like I think that we in, in a society that where it's like stuff, things must happen all the time. Quick, change the channel. Quick, this, this. Show me this. Show me this. The fact that you you give a, a feud like a year to breathe and and to to settle and fester and then grow and you you, you there's peaks and there's troughs and and it's actually longer than a year because then Cena loses that match and it kind of sends Cena on like this downward spiral in terms of the story where he's like I lost the biggest match of my career and I just haven't quite been the same since and it builds up to him going all right WrestleMania 29 we'll have another one and then yeah. it's like that redemption arc again. So it's like it's like a two-year story that these two tell. Amazing, um, right? Amazing. Two of the best at, at what they do, just at the top yeah. of their game as well. Absolutely. Where where did you watch that for the first time? In Hong Kong. In yeah. Hong Kong. Like I think uh, I don't think I watched it live, but I think it was the next night I got to watch it or something. So yeah, it was amazing to me. Um, in Hong Kong, all the other wrestlers all loved Japanese wrestling, and they just all wished that they were Japanese wrestlers so badly. And I was like, no, man, the guys in the WWE, because the Japanese wrestlers, are, you know, they are amazing wrestlers, but they don't have the brand in the same way that The Rock and Cena do. Mm. So I was, but I was, you know, I was watching all through the build up and everything, and that was just masterful, as far as I could tell. I think that was. Wonderful. Absolutely Wonderful. was. It absolutely was. Is there a particular, I, I think you, I say is there a particular moment from that match, but you kind of summed up the whole match there with the <laughs> counters and the finishes and even that, and even the closing moment, which is like, I've done everything else. Let's give them a people's elbow. Nothing else we can go for now. Just, That's right. It's the only option that remains. Uh, this has been a wonderful 90 minutes spent chatting to you. It's been fantastic, mate. I've really enjoyed like uh, the, the journey that we've been on. A la rock, a la rock Cena. I mean, we're waiting on dates for Baby Beard, but you are heading to Europe. You're coming to Spain. Oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen! First time in two years, Lady Beard goes anywhere overseas. Japan weekend a Coruña in Spain, March 26 and 27, 2022. You need to head on down to the Japan weekend website and organize yourself a ticket right now. Now, unfortunately, it's not the group; it's only Lady Beard because you know, well, times are tough, frankly, in this current current world condition in which we live but finally um 
up until the start of this pandemic, my life was a constant globe traveling adventure and it was wonderful. And it's been two years of, um, uh, of catastrophic, um, what's the name of the uh, fear of small spaces? Claustrophobic, <laughs> claustrophobic, catastrophic, claustrophobic um, agony on Ladybeard's part. So Ladybeard is thrilled to finally get back overseas. A Coruña in Spain, Japan weekend, A Coruña, March 26 and 27. Come on in, come on in from the UK, come on in from France, come on in from Deutschland, or from Sweden, or from all the way over in Iceland, wherever you may be in the vicinity. I look forward to seeing you there. Perfect. Um, where can people go to, 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 to find out more about you, to find out everything they need to know about Baby Beard yes. and yes. all in between? How can people find you? Let's plug away. Please head on down to the internet uh, and all the social medias, Lady Beard, as in lady that has beard, one word, Lady Beard underscore Japan. That's me. My group is Baby Beard, as in baby that has beard, a.k.a. Tom Campbell, Baby Beard underscore Japan. Put that in, do all the following. You can go to my website if you want, which is ladybeard.com, which is nice and easy to remember. Um, and I uh, hope to see all of you very, very soon. Um, really appreciate you reaching out, Tom. This has been a really wonderful chat. Honestly, and- I've, it's, the pleasure's all mine. Uh, thank you so much for doing it. It's just been, it's, it's been a deep joy. I'm really glad we had that quiet night at home and we put Poor Hollywood Eats Japan on. <laughs> Yes, Paul Hollywood. Hey, shout out Paul Hollywood, my boy. Paul's a legend. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs> 